0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. This debate was recorded live at How The Light Gets In 2018 the world's largest music and philosophy festival. Following on from last week's podcast, we are offering 20% off your ticket price for next year's festival. Go to howthelightgetsin.org now and enter discount code PODCAST20 to get 20% off next year's ticket price. That's PODCAST20, all lowercase letters, for 20% off next year's How The Light Gets In. Mental health is increasingly considered as one of the problems of our times. As health secretary for the UK government, Jeremy Hunt stated that children's mental health was the greatest failing of the National Health Service. But just how should we tackle these issues? From drugs to diagnosis, this week's panel looked to offer fresh alternatives to our current approach. Providing the answers, Uses and Abuses of Psychiatry author Lucy Johnstone psychiatrist david nutt and author of the antidepressant era david healy
2: welcome to this debate on minds madness and medicine in recent years we've made quite a lot of progress with physical illnesses so heart disease deaths have fallen by almost two-thirds since the 60s. And we can say similar things about cancer and HIV and all kinds of um, physical ailments. But mental illness has sort of stayed a bit of a problem. And the question is, why is that? So Lucy, I'm going to start with you. Go.
3: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Caroline. (laughs) Okay, so I agree with part of the premise of that question, which is that outcomes for what we might call mental illness have not improved. It's a little appreciated fact that if you look at the literature, it appears that outcomes were actually better in the 19th century, before the advent of what we might call modern medicine. Outcomes continue to be better in non-Westernised, non-industrialised societies, where recovery from things we might call schizophrenia and so on appears to be much more certain and much quicker than in Westernised countries. I am, I'm afraid, going to object to the language you use, and I will continue to do this. (laughs) because if we start referring to these very real and very distressing experiences as mental illness, we've already conceded part of the argument. My fellow panellists may disagree with me, but let me tell you, I'm right and they're wrong on this one. Um, It has never been demonstrated that these very real experiences are best understood as medical illnesses with primarily biological causes. So from my point of view, it's not about whether they have the wrong diagnoses. It's about whether it makes sense to use a diagnostic approach at all or whether or not we should actually be moving away from asking what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. And if we follow that through, if we ask what's happened to people, we will find almost inevitably that all sorts of very, very difficult things have happened and are happening. And we will find in that process, I would argue that the diagnostic categories become redundant. We will also find that, of course, there are no medical cures for trauma, abuse, loss, bereavement, social marginalisation, inequality, injustice, unemployment. You know, drugs can be some help along the way, but actually, to achieve anything like the outcomes we should be achieving, we mo- need to be moving well away from the diagnostic model. Thank you very much. Um, I'll go
2: over to you and um, David Nutt. Mm.
4: Thanks. I'm a a psychiatrist like like David here, I've I've spent most of my life treating people who do have what I would call psychiatric disorders. They come to me because they really struggle with a range of different symptoms. And whilst I agree with Lucy to some extent that a better world would give us fewer people with these problems, as a doctor I'm duty-bound to try to help them. Until we've got rid of trauma in childhood, until we've got rid of poverty, we still got to help people who are suffering. And that's what I do, and current medicines have some value. Uh, They're not brilliant. I think we can improve on them by, if we're innovative, using drugs like psychedelics. I still think at present there's no escape than accepting the fact that that people do have a degree of need, which can in some cases be ameliorated by medication being used with appropriate levels of psychotherapy as well.
2: Thank you. And David Healy.
5: contrast to the other two speakers, I believe the illnesses are real. Uh, The problem is from uh, the mental health point of view that the life expectancy of people with serious mental illness in the 19th century was as good as it is today. We began to recognize that people with serious mental illness have a loss of 20 years worth of life expectancy, 20 years ago, and no one has done anything about it. A lot of people have thought it's because of the drugs we put them on, that cause people to gain weight, get diabetes and things like that. It's not. It's principally because people who go on these drugs, when they don't suit them, they commit suicide. Jeremy Hunt has recently said children's mental health is the greatest failing of the NHS. That all sorts of girls in particular are being seen by GPs and it takes ages for them to be seen by mental health services. And in the meantime, they go on to try and kill themselves. And the person who ends up in the mental health services is a completely different person to the person who went to her GP first because she's been put on antidepressants, which have changed the picture. There have been 30 trials of antidepressant drugs in teenagers, all negative. You've been told again and again and again, Prozac is on the market because there's two trials of Prozac where the drug has worked. It didn't. In the trials that led to Prozac being licensed, it didn't work on the primary outcomes. There's not a single clinical trial of these drugs in teenagers where they work. But yet, antidepressants, besides the oral contraceptive, are the most commonly used drugs by teenage girls. So while there's been great advances in healthcare and things like surgery, there hasn't been when it comes to drugs. The drugs are the biggest source of the problem, not the diagnosis.
2: Thank you very much. So, mm-hmm. so I think one thing that we could definitely all agree on, whether you call it illness or a life experience, there are people who, who are struggling and and in need of some intervention, and we aren't necessarily getting it right. So this sort of leads on to our first theme for the debate: are our psychiatric
3: diagnoses mistaken? So I will start with Lucy again. Okay, when DSM, the latest diagnostic manual, came out in its revised form in 2015, DSM-5, a number of people, including Dr Alan Francis, the chair of the DSM-4 committee, described it in very strong terms, such as, there is no reason to believe it's safe or scientifically sound. Now, I get into trouble when I say that kind of things. He went on to just say the idea that you can define a mental disorder is bullshit. I quite like that straightforward description. So it is an open secret that the very people who draw up these manuals are saying this does not work. They are not, of course, giving up on the diagnostic enterprise entirely. They are pouring millions of pounds and dollars mistakenly, in my view, into developing new systems... But there is a very public admission that, that patients deserve better, their words, not mine. Now, where I might differ from some of these you know, mainstream orthodox eminent psychiatrists who have suddenly turned critic is that I think we need to abandon the illusory belief that we can divide human emotional suffering into neat categories, as in the natural sciences. If we stopped talking about mental illness at all and replaced every single usage with a phrase like human emotional suffering, I think we'd be able to see much more clearly how wrong we've got it. OK, so just rip it up, start again with something completely new. Which is, which is happening which is happening, but it's what we start again with that is the question.
2: And can you just sort of um, briefly explain what your your initiative is, your, um, okay. the power threat meaning framework? That might help people to know where you're coming okay. from. Okay,
3: for the last five years, I and a group of other psychologists, mainly uh, survivors, as they've described themselves, people who've escaped the psychiatric system, have been working on developing a conceptual alternative <sighs> to psychiatric diagnosis. It is possible, we think, to create a framework that makes diagnosis absolutely redundant and which, unlike the existing framework, is actually evidence-based and does lead to interventions, but at a much wider level than simply individual ones and would very much put the use of psychiatric drugs into a much smaller place.
2: OK, thank you very much. So, so David, would like to, to respond to that. Rip it up, start again. What do you, what do you reckon to that?
4: Well, I'll wait to see whether... Uh, Lucy's uh, new vision works in clinical practice. Um, that's what I will wait, wait, wait. We need. I mean, you know, I'm, all in, I'm, I'm not against innovation, and I am sympathetic to some of the points she makes. The reason we have the DSM f- four or three or five is because it's a way for American psychiatrists to bill. And it, in fact, I'm unfortunately uh, rather sceptical about the ability of the uh, of American psychiatrists to make diagnoses appropriately. And I'll give you an example. I mean. It, in the States, pretty much anyone who had anything wrong with them was called schizophrenic. And that was creating enormous burdens and people were being inappropriately hospitalized, etc. So a program was set up whereby British psychiatrists educated American psychiatrists on how to make the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And we actually managed to stop them over-including people in the diagnosis of schizophrenia, people with other sorts of problems. But in the end, it became clear that they could only cope with one concept of schizophrenia. So all the variety and the complexity of schizophrenia was ignored. And that's one of the reasons we haven't had much innovation in the last 20 years, because these are not the same problems, they're not the same diagnosis, not the same disorders, and it's very unlikely you're going to find a treatment which works across what might be multiple different forms. We know that schizophrenia, if it is a disorder, and it isn't a single disorder, but it, it's clearly some altered form of mental functioning, occurs in multiple forms. It is not a single-unitary diagnosis. Until we differentiate them appropriately, it's going to be very hard to, to develop proper interventions, whatever Lucy develops or whatever the pharma industry has about We've got to be much more fine-grained in our approach.
2: Okay, so and, and pres- I assume you, you will agree, uh, at least on the point that it's all a big billing tool, the, the, the drugs for certain categories. Yeah, okay. is, yes, Yes. I yes.
5: believe diagnosis is very important. Uh, I haven't ever opened DSM-5. Uh, very few people here in the UK have. But diagnosis is important. If the illnesses aren't real and the diagnoses don't help me and you get there, this is pretty wild. Now, it is wild in the sense of people do shock and mutilate and poison people who shouldn't ever be shocked and mutilated and poisoned. But that's not the same thing as saying that we shouldn't have diagnoses. Now. Trauma is common, very common. You hear a lot about trauma these days. The single most common trauma any of you are going to go through, whatever about the ones you've been through in the past, that you're going to go through is, if any of you are on any pill, you're going to have adverse events from them. You'll go to a doctor, and you'll be too scared to mention the adverse events that you're having, because you know doctors get nasty if you talk about the adverse events. With all trauma, there is the issue about the problem the person has had when they've been traumatized, but as as big a problem is the not being believed. And you aren't going to be believed by a doctor. The health services are not friendly to you when you have an adverse effect. Lucy won't be friendly. There's no clinical psychologist in the world who speaks up on behalf of the patients going through their clinical room, who are on antidepressants and other drugs, who are having adverse events? There's no clinical psychologist that ever supports the patient to raise the adverse events that the person's having when they go to a doctor. I but do. beyond yes. that, hold on a second, <laughs> beyond do. that, well, okay, one thing then to bring in for the one clinical psychologist who does, and is, my colleagues do. It, no, they don't. And anyone who's trained by no, me does? Don't. There's a no, few over don't. there. I but think well, I kind of okay. Well, the antidepressants. <laughs> get you hooked you go into withdrawal if you actually try to hold them they can make you suicidal they can cause you to hear voices if a drug is causing a problem like that you can't explain it as just some strange life experience that's mental and has no physical component to it
2: so so you're saying keep we need to keep the diagnosis at the very least so that we know what we're treating and what's going to happen when we treat it but one thing that no one has mentioned and I think is quite important for for people who are experiencing some some difficulties is that sometimes it doesn't help to have a label sometimes it does help to think oh thank goodness for that I'm not going mad it's Well,
3: we live in a diagnostically based world. So what I always say is people will need to retain their diagnoses for some purposes, like access to welfare and benefits. It's not about stripping these labels off people, forbidding people to use certain language makes sense to them. It is about, I think, professionals having an ethical duty to tell people something that has some claim to be true. And to say that you have schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder or something like that, it's not actually even believed by most cutting-edge researchers and psychiatrists. This is a potentially an enormously damaging thing to say. And Yes, some people say, I feel validated, I feel understood, I feel taken seriously. They say that on the basis that they have been told something that is in some sense true, that will lead to something that can legitimately be called a treatment. And that is not the case. There are other ways, better ways, of giving people the important sense that, yes, someone's listened, someone's heard, there is an explanation. And those explanations are, are nearly always rooted in people's lives. And I'm going to make another point about language, I'm afraid. Uh, can we... Tem- temporarily banned the term antidepressants along with antipsychotics and mood stabilisers and so on. These are pieces of drug company rhetoric. I'll be interested if this David agrees with me. Because they have no known specific effect on the things we might call depression. They are not analogous to antibiotics for your chest infection. And as long as we see them as having these specific disease-targeted effects rather than as having general kind of sedative or stimulant effects which may be useful for some people at some point then we can't have a sensible discussion because we're seeing them as a necessary treatment for an illness rather than often short-term useful ways of getting through a difficult crisis.
4: Well uh, no, no no Lucy that's that's taking the uh, you know that's over extrapolating uh, your theory. Mm. There are unquestionably people who have some kind of bipolar disorder where they have recurrent manic episodes often with depressive episodes whose lives have been completely turned around by the use of a drug which has never been promoted by the industry and it's called lithium and that's been around since the 1950s and it's life-saving in many people's cases we've got strong genetic predictors of whether people were going to be bipolar and uh, we've also got now some genetic evidence as to how the drug might work. So it, that, you're overstating your case. There are clearly individuals. <laughs> I, I think I'm response.
3: understating my case.
4: <laughs> well, it's up to the audience to decide that. But I'm going to argue that extreme bipolar disorder is unquestionably a disorder that is sensitive to drugs. It's not a myth generated by the pharma industry. Lithium was actually resisted by the pharma industry and still is. <laughs>
3: But please note that I'm not saying that mood swings, for example, don't exist. I'm not saying that drugs don't have some useful effects. I'm saying it does not actually make sense to call these medical illnesses for which the chemicals we administer can legitimately be seen as treatments. That's a very different way of looking at it.
1: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers?
3: And there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level
5: one of the issues one of the problems we've got is the turn to treating by numbers which uh, actually applies across the board from hypertension to mental illness in the case of hypertension people if the numbers are up they just get put on drugs without any thinking about what could be causing it or maybe actually their numbers need to be up it's the same thing in uh, the mental illness field uh, also. But to say that we overtreat people just on the basis that you've got depressive symptoms, to say on the basis of that, that there isn't such a thing as a depressive illness, is mistaken. One of the problems we've got, which possibly unites both Dave and Lucy and me, if we began to think about it a bit more, is this, that the industry cell diagnoses in order to sell pills so a lot of people are ending up being diagnosed who shouldn't be and the people who are failing you in all this are people like dave and me who should be saying to a lot of people who come into us that look you're distressed because you're unemployed you're distressed because you've broken up with your girlfriend this is not a mental illness there's tons of people who shouldn't be ending up in the health system either for physical illnesses or mental illnesses and the people who are failing you here are doctors not diagnosis
2: okay so we're pretty clear that no one can point to a person and say it's that—that's the problem, and this is what's caused it, and this is how we're going to fix it. So, is it the case that we, what we need is a better under, understanding of the brain, neuroscience? Can we look for the answers in the brain? Can we stick somebody in a scanner and say, "Ah, well, you're upset because you've lost your job, and you're clinically depressed for no good reason, but your brain is is not wired right?" Is that what we need to do to get to where we need to be? David, I think we we'll well, probably
4: you. could, but I'm not sure it's worth doing.
2: Why? Why? Well, because I think
4: it's <laughs> hugely expensive and. Um, and the, the sensitivity of those assays is too limited at present.
2: But Is there any sense that the problem is that we don't understand how the brain works well enough to see whether it brings you a, a tough experience or whether because every, everybody I think um, will suffer some trauma or upset in their life but not everybody becomes depressed or or has any kind of we've yeah, we've got, we've got
4: predictors problems. but they're not diagnostic. Part of the disagreement here is whether whether a statistical change or a statistical difference between a population in terms of a biological measure is meaningful or not. I mean, from a scientific point of view, it's very interesting. From a diagnostic point of view, it may not be sufficiently discriminating to be useful. We're arguing at the extremes of that. At some point, it may well be possible, it may be possible to make predictions based on brain science about some aspects of mental illness. I mean, the great discussion about this... Is, uh, was the work of uh, the really top influential German sort of philosopher, psychiatrist, Karl Jaspers. He argued very clearly there were two separate elements to mental illness. There's the form and the content. We will never be able to use brain science to understand the content. But the form, you know, whether someone's paranoid versus whether someone has got mania, whether someone's got deep, deep psychotic depression, the, the form may be amenable to something like brain imaging.
2: So interesting and useful for science, but not necessarily for the individual. So would you ag- agree, Lucy, that actually that's pretty useless trying to look at the brain because you're much better asked asking why, how do you feel, what's happened to you? Um, is that where, where you're coming from? Um, from I would agree with that, yes.
3: Interesting. I thought we were going to disagree on this yeah, one. I, I thought so. we <laughs> too, yeah. I mean, perhaps one way of putting it is... All human experience is mediated and enabled by our biology, so it's not as I'm sometimes accused of being a case of denying the role of the body, pretending we don't have brains. Of course we do. Every experience we have is reflected at some level in our brains and bodies. There's something going on in my brain at the moment as I 'm sitting talking, my speech areas are lighting up, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. doesn't mean, "Oh look, that's the cause of her talking," or still less, she's suffering from some kind of mental illness that makes her put forward these extreme views. So the question is, how useful is it to look at, at human experience at that level? And if you think about the fact that we know a huge amount about things like poverty, discrimination, unemployment, trauma, abuse, that massively increase the likelihood you're going to experience distress, it's not obvious to me that the first place you look for answers or healing is by putting someone into a scanner. It really doesn't make any sense. However, I think I would want to add that there's a lot of very interesting stuff coming out of neuroscience, which I'm really not an expert in, which is about the impact of trauma and abuse and neglect on the human brain development and on the body. So the impact of early relationships on the developing brain, that's fascinating. The impact of overwhelming experiences on our kind of threat systems, our alarm systems. It's really, really important stuff to know about, but it is very, very different from saying low serotonin is caused your depression. This is the means by which our experiences are mediated enabled, it's not, in some sense, the cause of our so-called mental illness.
2: Mm-hmm. And what's your, what's your take on this, David? I've got a very
5: different take again, Excellent. which is that uh, <laughs> the biggest problem you guys have is not that you need more clinical psychology research or more neuroscience research. Over the last 20 years, you've had more and more research from a psychological point of view, more and more neuroscience research. So There's been huge developments, but your life expectancy is going down across the board. The biggest problem you've got is no one's listening to you and no one's looking at you. You go to a doctor and you see a different doctor every time. It used to be important when you went to a doctor and you went back a week later that they'd notice the fact that, hey, he's turned paler or he's got a bit stiffer. These things used to be important. The other reason that they aren't listening to you is the fact that the guidelines say, if your numbers are this, take this. And that's the biggest problem you've got, and that's the biggest problem doctors have got, because the guidelines across the board, whether for the statins or the antidepressants, sorry about that, Lucy, are based on junk. I don't think you've actually got
4: evidence that mortality is increasing in middle-aged Western Europeans is due to drugs. I think the
5: evidence is more it's due to alcohol. And eating too much. No, no, hang on David, David, wait a minute. Life expectancy had been rising, even though we're consuming more and more alcohol, it had been rising until two years ago. For the first time in 200 years in the United States, in the UK, it's dropping, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And it's Dropping, I know, I know it's dropping actually across the board. Now, no one knows the answer. Yes, I'm yes, saying to yes, you that yes, one of yes. one of the well the leading factors has to be the polypharmacy. It could be. Fifty percent of this audience are on three drugs or more, and maybe four or five drugs. You know. That it could be polypharmacy, but I think there are other credible theories such as
4: the fact we're consuming more alcohol and we'd consume forty years of Well that's of actually alcohol.
5: part of polypharmacy, isn't it? Well, it depends, I mean, I, that just proves the point, do you prescri- if you don't, oh, don't know. If, you're saying, <laughs> if, if we're saying alcohol and nicotine kill people, yeah. they were both prescription drugs at one point, there's nothing particularly safer about Prozac or whatever than alcohol. Prozac and the SSRIs lead to compulsive alcohol intake. I mean, they'll lead pregnant women to drink even though they know they shouldn't be drinking during pregnancy.
3: It's not the problem a lot to do with inequality, which has very convincingly been shown, in my view, to lead to earlier death across the spectrum. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's sort of a lot of this might come under the neat umbrella of lifestyle, which is obviously more complicated than it looks. You know, bad diets, too much drinking, too much smoking. No,
5: but we've had very bad lifestyles for a long time. And arguably, during the 1960s, people's lifestyles were even worse. Deep fried Mars bars. But life expectancy was going up. It's dropping. This is unique. And also,
3: nearly everyone has a mental health problem. And I have interesting news to you, folks. I think I read recently that something like three in four Americans currently qualify for a mental illness diagnosis. We're well on the way to four in four. And interestingly, when everyone's mentally ill, nobody will be mentally ill. Because by definition, it will be normal to be mentally ill. (laughs) So there is hope on the horizon.
2: <laughs> I mean, it does seem that we are in a bit of a mess. I mean, no matter which way you look at it, the, looking at the brain won't help. Well, it certainly We're, isn't the... It's solid. not going to help any time okay. soon. Well, Can I'm, I you know, yeah, yeah.
5: reframe things a bit? You've got Lucy talking about the mind and Dave talking about the brain. I'm brain talking about brain I'm talking about power. Your biggest problem is the power that's shaping your health at at the moment and isn't interested in you living longer. David,
2: well, so you're going to
3: love our framework. You're, it's all about power. There you go. You're there you love know, it. But I
5: believe in diagnosis. Really. Yeah,
3: I know. You won't after you've finished it,
5: though. I will. <laughs> I will.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so this does neatly bring us on to the to the last uh, theme. And I think we're kind of, dare I say, maybe even going to agree.
1: No. It,
2: <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> that if neuroscience is going to help, and drugs help sometimes, but not all the time, Should we start turning to more social and psychological ways of looking at these problems and saying what we need to change is inequality, loneliness, these kinds of things, or change the way people think somehow without worrying about their brain chemistry or their setup or their genetics?
4: We know that 50% of the likelihood of someone developing what I will carry on for the sake of convenience, calling a mental illness, is determined the day they're born, by their, their parents, social status, income, mental health, use of drugs, etc. And we've known that for 50 years, but the problem is affecting change. And, and, that, and that is the big challenge. And actually, I think doctors are pretty good at arguing the point there should be change, but it, we can't go it alone. Society's got to want to change. You've got to vote in the people that want to look after poor people better. You know, it's not our fault as doctors that they're not being better treated when they're children.
2: So, is it easier to fix society or is it to fix well, the brain to fix, or to fix the individual? So the brain a hell of a lot
4: easier than society. The trouble with society is it's full of all these individual brains. You know, yeah. And each one of them's <laughs> different. And then, of course, it, we, you know, our society is run by people without brains, and that's. <interesting>
2: guess the answer is a very easy yes from you Lucy that we should be looking at social and
3: psychological um, treatments rather than trying to. Uh, except I people. wouldn't call them treatments yes okay. but I mean you're right yes I mean. Interventions. My fellow panellists have made a very good case I think for abandoning medical model psychiatry they've explained that mortality rates are dropping that drugs kill people that our outcomes are worsening that Uh, The worst that you could do is go to your doctor and get some of these dangerous toxins administered. So let's drop that. Let's drop the diagnostic system. Once we do that, we'll be able to see, I think, more clearly. The roots of distress are social. They are social causes. That does of course that means the answers are complex but actually what we're in the business of doing at the moment by denying those links is we're turning people into patients and actually killing them this is not acceptable not sustainable psychiatry is an ideology with no evidence to support it a very good way forward is to stop, stop diagnosis start actually looking to what happens in people's lives and then start thinking about what we actually need to do to reduce the burden of emotional distress and suffering
2: one thing i would put to you though is it's one to know that the reason you feel the way you do is because x y and z has happened to you throughout your life knowing that is only half the battle and you could spend the rest of your life trying to get over these difficult traumas and work around them or you could take a drug that might work for you and in terms of somebody's life it's not a quick fix in any by any stretch, but that might help you get on with your life and work on these things a little bit easier. So, I mean, is there any place in your sort of framework for people who, okay, we'll take the drug if it helps, and we'll work on the other stuff as well.
3: Of course, but it's the messages are more important than whether you take the drug or not. So the message that this is a medication that will treat your mental illness, which is due to something aberrant in your brain, which unfortunately happened to you, completely separate from the fact that you happen to be poor and unemployed and raising children on your own and all the rest of it, is a very, very damaging message. It's a blaming message. It's a recipe for helplessness, for dependence on expert advice which may well be actually wrong and for chemicals that may well cause very serious long-term physical problems as well as actually ironically extending your distress but actually once we put the story in we can see this is an understandable response.
2: Mm -hmm. So you're not totally anti-drugs it's more yeah understanding in the long term and and what what do you think David? Obviously we have to do something for people so what do we do if we don't give them the drugs?
5: Part of the art is not making the diagnosis too frequently and not handing out the poisons too easily and that's what doctors used to do before DSM-3 or 4 or 5. They used to treat about 10 or 12 illnesses rather than the 500 we have now. We need to get back to a world where you've got doctors and probably the best doctors these days are not expert psychiatrists for instance in uh, the mental health field it's your family doctor, it's primary
4: care I just want to say one thing. So one of the reasons I'm interested in psychedelics is because they work in a very different way to the antidepressants. What we know about the traditional antidepressants like Prozac is that they provide an elevation of serotonin which kind of buffers you against the stresses of life. It doesn't get rid of the depression. It just allows you to drift away or minimise because you're not feeling so stressed all the time. But that buffer also as a negative consequence, because it also buffers you a bit against the good things in life. So people often say they've got a rather more narrow repertoire of emotions. We now believe that psychedelics, which work kind on of a different serotonin system, they, they help people reformulate the way they view their life, so that they can actually acquire some kind of mastery over the traumas they've had, over the, the poverty and the distress. And this may be a, a, a more powerful way, particularly when you use with psychotherapy, to try to help people make a step change so that they can escape from that trench or that uh, trough of, of misery they've been in for perhaps 20, 30, 40 years.
2: Thank you,
1: everyone. If you'd like to thank the panel. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Remember to like and subscribe our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud at Philosophy for Our Times.